This is a Federal News Network podcast. As one of its strategies for getting the most possible participation, the Census Bureau spends big on outreach. For the 2020 decennial count, the integrated communications campaign cost the Bureau $675 million, twice what it spent in 2010. Here in studio with details, Census Program Manager Maria Malagon. Ms. Malagon, good to have you in. Hi. So tell us about this campaign. There's really two parts to it. I guess you have the community outreach that you need to understand who you have to communicate with, and then there's the means of communicating with them. Is that generally how it works? Exactly. So we have a very broad effort to engage the population, which start years before the census with both communications research to serve as the foundation for the campaign, and also with our recruitment advertising effort, which is Pretty big, too, because we always have to outreach at least around a million people so we can get more than 500,000 temporary employees that we try to hire every census. So it starts with that, and it goes on and on with other efforts like national and local partnerships, social media, digital media, our statistics in school programs, which we have several enhancements during the decennial and well, like paid advertising, which I think it's the effort that most people see and it's more tangible for people. And just give us a sense of how many languages you had to reach that comprise the United States and the population. What do people speak here besides English and Spanish? So originally we created a campaign that was English plus 12 other languages. And then during COVID, we decided that we needed to do additional efforts, especially because there were certain areas of the country that it was very difficult to reach with what we have already put in place. So we increased to 47 total languages. So I will say that the top ones other than English and Spanish are usually the Asian languages, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Tagalog. We also included Arabic, Russian, Polish, Portuguese, French, and you use a lot of French for sub-Saharan African populations. We also do Haitian Creole. It's a lot. It's a, it's a huge effort. <laughs> and I imagine you must have to have people that are very fluent in those languages working with you because it's easy to make a horrible cultural mistake unwittingly, isn't it? Absolutely. So one of the things that distinguish our campaign is that other that we try to hire a very diverse team at the Census Bureau. It's a, a lot of people working in communications during a decennial inside the census. We also have the contractor that help us put the campaign together. So we had a main contractor with 15 subcontractors, but the key was also hiring among those subcontractors agencies that represented different cultures in the country. We have a black agency in charge of African-American, Caribbean, and African populations. We had an Asian agency, a Hispanic agency in charge of both Spanish-speaking and Portuguese-speaking groups. We have an agency for the American Indian and Alaska Native population, a Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander agency, and an agency in Puerto Rico taking in consideration that cultural nuances are different over there from the Hispanic audience in the United States. What a great country. (laughs) I I wanted to ask you, too, is this a technique that is used by, say, the large, let's call them Super Bowl-level advertisers, Ford Motor Company, Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch Brewing, that have to reach pretty much everyone? You learn from industry and how they do that type of outreach? Of course. We take the latest industry practices and we have a very strong campaign in what we call the diverse audience. We, in fact, 
to say that the core of the campaign is ads that can be rich in terms of how we buy them and how we create them that can reach the entire population. But at the same time, we made some sort of like a balance here with the cultural appropriateness that we have to have with these segments of the population that I described. And that even goes also with the ones that are not particularly minority populations. We try to create also, it's advertising specifically for the rural populations, which not necessarily represent any of these minorities, but has different nuances too. So we try to be very specific with this. Yes, that's right. The rural populations could be white and I guess you call standard issue American, but they have a very different communication requirement than, say, Upper East Side of Manhattan. Of course. Like, you can go to Manhattan and you can definitely advertise, for example, in transit. You can do, I don't know, bus stations and billboards, signs at the subway. But if you want to reach rural America, you have to go to radio. There's no discussion. Like, people drive. They have very long commutes or driving around. Radio is key over there. So our country is so diverse that you really have to balance that. We're speaking with Maria Malagon. She is Program Manager for Integrated Partnerships and Communications at the Census Bureau. And uh, before we get to some of the results of all this, I also wanted to ask you how the rise of social media, and if you look at it in 2020, very different from 2010, 2009. Mm-hmm. And so how do you track that and how did that figure into this this definitely had a big impact. In 2010, I don't think I have the exact number, but maybe less than 10% of our advertising or our efforts were in social media. I don't even think I can say advertising. I think it was more like native social media performed inside the Census Bureau. We did it. We were there. Not like that. Uh, digital advertising was probably more than 50% of our budget this time in what we spent on media. From the outside, from our social media, both our native one and our digital advertising, we got about 100 million clicks on our 2020census.gov website. And from that, we converted around 43% onto actual people going to the instrument and answering the census. So that can tell you how powerful it was. Like in comparison to our phone line, like I'm not going to say that we barely have people answering the census through phone. But the online instrument was like king here. That's that's where people went. And if we look at the numbers from our ads, they almost half of the people that came to the instrument, it was because they went to some ad or some link on social media. Got it. And is it fair to say that, well, you tell me, you know, in suburban America, most of the newspapers, the weekly papers and the daily papers of smaller cities have all but disappeared. In the ethnic communities, do they still have local printed newsprint? They still do. And that is really important. I think that we are making a huge change in terms of newspaper, yes, on the diverse audience. But you have a lot of ethnic newspapers are still going on and still being very successful. So when I say that after COVID, we increased to 47 languages, a lot of that increase was thanks to those local newspapers. Sometimes you cannot find an actual medium on a particular audience. I like I don't even know which one to tell you. So I don't want to say like anything wrong. But well, New York used to have two or three Yiddish newspapers. Exactly. At one you time. you have Yiddish. You have Italian that we advertise. And we had Armenian. We changed the language. We increased the languages. 
But you want to advertise, but not always the medium that people consume is also located in the United States. So we cannot advertise on all of them. Like we have to buy in mediums here. And for example, when you go to a website that a lot of people from a particular ethnicity goes, perhaps it's a website based in their home country or like a radio station or something based over there. Right. So you got to so be local. You have to be local. And still... These newspapers exist, they are local, they are in the United States, and they are consumed. Like, people like them and people believe in them. Like, I always say that something that you have to consider when you think about communications campaign in the federal government and the languages, it's like sometimes you look at the numbers and it's going to tell you that a lot of people speak English and that they speak English but yes, perhaps they speak English, but they don't consume media in English or they just don't trust media in English versus if you really go and communicate in their native language, they trust it. Maybe it's not a big newspaper. It's not one of the tops in the United States, but they consume it and they trust it because it's in their language and it's run by people like them. Sure. And some of the big English huge newspapers, even people that speak English don't trust them either anymore. <laughs> just the way the media has gotten in this country. And... Besides the increase in number of languages, the COVID pandemic affected so many census operations, as we reported in detail. Other than the expansion of language, did this also affect your operation, the outreach? It basically affected everything. I always say that we conducted a lot of crisis drills and non-crisis drill look at like COVID. <laughs> we were expecting everything probably except for a global pandemic. So we have to change the whole structure. As you probably talk with other guests, lots of operations change. Yes, 95% of the country, they were getting just the mailer with like the link to go fill their, their census. There's a 5% still of the population that they were getting in-person visits, that they were being, that their addresses were updated by the time that they were getting there. So you had like that very rural areas, tribes, um, the whole operation in Puerto Rico that because weather phenomenon sure, in, the, yeah. in the previous years, they were doing it in person. So you have all that population that we have to change the whole thing. That's one. Number two, you have people who, even if they had the form at home, they were not going to look at the phone because they were extremely concerned by something else. So we have to change absolutely everything. Number one, we changed the creative of the ads. A lot of what we produce, for example, had people like in normal circumstances, in groups, and at the beginning, it's okay, it's what you have, but after a couple of days, that was not normal. You and need it, to have the masks and so on. You you have to, to reflect certain things, including mask usage. Like if you wanted to show ads that show the enumerators, we had to change it to show someone with a mask because we didn't want to get the wrong impression. We had to change the media buys completely because you usually buy for prime time. And the buys, imagine the hard work that we bought those media buys one year before. This was conducted on May 2019. And now we are in March 2020, and we were buying for MLB games, the final four in, in March Madness, all these things that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. So we, we changed everything to go more news-oriented. Very early in the morning, very late at night, where people were really watching. We start buying ads on, like, play episodes, like, like more on-demand episodes. I think we were one of the first 
sponsors of online concerts that became extremely popular. We moved to influencers because a lot of people were on social media just to entertain themselves. And we even changed with our outside. I mentioned earlier like bus stops ads. No one was in a bus stop. But people were ordering a lot of pizza. So we start advertising on pizza boxes. So you have to change. You Wonderful. have to change. <laughs> Get your pepperoni and then fill in your census exactly. form right after you go do that. And just another question on social media. In print media, you can control the environment, or at least you know what the environment will be. But in social media, you could have an ad juxtaposed with something pornographic, something totally inappropriate that mm -hmm. you don't want to be adjacent to. Mm -hmm. Were you able to control that or at least monitor that? We really try, number one, to be very careful on where we advertise. And this is with everything. Even with TV, we are very careful on like what kind of shows, how the traffic of the ads is going to be ordered. We don't want to be next to anything that is inappropriate. And we do the same with the media platforms of the, the websites that we advertise. And we monitor that. We also having the ads that are, look more like a social media post. We had people monitoring all the time. So we pretty much cover most of the day with someone from our contractor team monitoring these and trying to tackle misinformation. We have a, a whole initiative called Trust and Safety Team that they could come and talk to you for a long time on all the specific efforts that they did to manage where we were and the misinformation that it's a reality when you sure. advertise in social media that can happen. And so we know that the census came out, and most people now, after all the controversies over in the rearview mirror, are accepting the results. But are you able to correlate the campaign in a data sense? Say you had outreach to a Vietnamese-speaking or a Portuguese-speaking community with the rates of initial return or self-reporting of those communities yes. such that you can tell whether it all worked or not. Yes. Our final results on that haven't been live yet, and they, they, those are still under analysis and because there are a lot of assessments that they are conducting. And, of course, those are third party in the bureau, not related to me. I was the program manager, and, of course, naturally, I want everything to come nice and successful. But from the day to day, we were monitoring through our campaign optimization effort at nine levels of geography all our main 13 languages, nine segments and audiences. So we, we were tracking all the time. And we could see, at least on the day-to-day, -day, that we were being way more successful than we were expecting with certain populations. And I cannot disclose those, but we could see on the daily that our efforts were affecting that certain populations that we were expecting a lower response rate, they were trending better just because they were following certain events of the campaign. So that was very positive for us. A lot of things happened, a lot of changes in operations. There were a lot of efforts that hundreds of people in the Bureau contributed to these, but the response rates ended up being better than what we originally planned and definitely better than what we thought was going to be during COVID. So I want to think, and I imagine this is going to be tested and a nice report will come out, and definitely the communications and the way that we constantly change communications efforts, they sure. were like a help it in a great way with the success of the program. And what you imply then is that the assessment in detail is actually not done by your group, but independently. Exactly. So you as the program manager won't come out with a report evaluating your own program. Exactly. Although we have done lessons learned 
And I managed a very strong lessons learned process. We did a survey among our own people working and, and, and the different contractor companies working on the effort. We did focus groups on the, all the areas of the campaign and interviews. And we learned. Like, there are things that we still want to improve. I want to say that for next time, there are things that we still have improvement to make uh, with the languages, with the way that sure. we conduct our recruitment advertising, with certain things that we want to make more agile I think the use of digital and social media have demonstrated that we need to find ways to be more agile and there's always room for improvement with that. And it's difficult because we're the federal government and we have processes and we have rules and regulations that perhaps you don't have with a private sector client and that, and that has to be a reality for any advertising agency working with the government. But Perhaps the way that we clear certain stuff can be a little bit faster so we can really move with the times. That is the era of social media, and we have to be more agile. So has NIH called to recruit you to get these communities to get vaccinated? Oh, they have recruited a lot of people from the Census Bureau in the last couple of months. So I hope that our great staff that have been involved with the 2020 Census have something to contribute of what they learn during the campaign with the Department of Health efforts. And are you gearing up for 2030 now? We are gearing for 2030. We are actually, as I say, we're conducting assessments. I'm part of that committee. I am not over the campaign any longer, but I'm part of the committee that is creating research to improve uh, some of these things that I just told you to improve through certain studies that we conduct the campaign. And we have applied certain things. I can tell you that one of the lessons learned that we had was that we really needed to expand our partnership efforts towards being evergreen. We recruited over 400,000 national and local partners. And unfortunately, that's basically what we did in 2010. And you recruit them and then no one follow ups with them. So there's not much we can do with local partners. We don't have the staff to really cover people and really go and maintain the relationship. But we could do something with national partners. And that's what we did. Um, right now, I'm leading that effort. We opened an office called Office of Strategic Alliance with the goal of keeping those partners. We got almost 1,500 partners at the national level. So we're still working with them in ways that we can benefit all other bureau efforts like the upcoming 2022 economic census. And we keep the relationship and we help them uh, disseminating data, making them more aware of what the Census Bureau does. We help our programs. And the most important part, we have the effort ready and still working. So for 2030, it's way easier. It'll come sooner than we all think, I am afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Maria Maligon is Program Manager for the Integrated Partnerships and Communications at the Census Bureau. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential 
to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, 
confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.